Hello, friends, and welcome. Thank you so much for listening. This is part one of a new series called Hopeful Eschatology. These are some things that I've talked about in the past, but I wanted to put them back out there for people who have not heard these things before. We're going to start with the book of Matthew, and then we're going to move into the book of Revelation. And I just want to offer a fresh perspective. If you've grown up in kind of mainstream evangelical Christianity, probably you've just been exposed to sort of one flavor of eschatology. But through this series, I want to expose you to some other orthodox, completely orthodox ideas about eschatology and just offer these to you as things that you can take before the Lord and test before God and see what God is speaking to you and what God is saying in his word about the end of all things and his purpose for his creation. Thank you so much for listening. Let's dive into part one. We're going to go verse by verse through Matthew 24. We're going to start our series by looking at Matthew. And I think if we get a handle on Matthew 24 and 25, that will give us a really good foundation to move into the book of Revelation. So we're going to start with Matthew, then we're going to look at Revelation So let's start with Matthew chapter 24. And I'm going to say some things about Matthew that may be completely obvious to many people. But for me, somehow, uh, maybe just because I wasn't paying attention, but I grew up completely misunderstanding this portion of the scripture. And um, really, maybe not understanding it is a better way than misunderstanding. But uh, the best way, I think, to get a handle on what this passage of scripture is talking about is to get some context. The best way to get some context is to back up uh, in Matthew a little bit and see what Jesus was talking about up to now. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. And this is the parable of the vineyard and the wicked vine dressers. And we talked about this parable in our podcast, um, talking about the parables of Jesus, that the kingdom of God is like, that life under God's reign be like. That podcast, if you want to go back and listen to it. But he tells this podcast of these wicked vine dressers who are eventually removed from the vineyard, and the vineyard is given to other vine dressers who will honor the uh, the landowner, who will honor the master. And then we have the parable of the wedding feast, same concept, like the original invitees of the wedding to the wedding refused the invitation, and so the king says, okay, forget those guys, we're going to fill up the wedding hall with other people, people who weren't even originally invited. And so we talked about how that is Jesus prophesying how uh, God is going to basically take the kingdom, and it was intended for Israel, but they refused it, and so it's now going to go to the Gentiles. And then Matthew records the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him in something he says. And then we have chapter 23, where Jesus basically says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. He says how terrible it's going to be for you. You are hypocrites. You're pretenders. You're brood of vipers, nest of poisonous snakes. And then he gets to this um, frightening verse in verse 35 of Matthew 23, he says, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he laments over Jerusalem 
and he's he's heartbroken. He says, I, I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And basically he's saying, the Messiah came to you. I came to save you, and you didn't recognize me. And the result for you is going to be disastrous. It's what Jesus says in Luke 19.44. He says, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, that Jesus had come to bring salvation, and they rejected him. They rejected God's son. It's the it's these parables that he's been telling them to warn them. Don't be like these wicked vine dressers. Don't be these people invited to the wedding banquet who refused. But their hearts are hard, and he's saying, upon this generation is going to come all of the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah. Then he's leaving the temple. Now we're getting into Matthew 24. He's leaving the temple and going away, and his disciples came, and they point out all the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these? Do you not know? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then they walk up on the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the Temple Mount is on a, a little hill or a little mountain, and the Mount of Olives is on a, is a little hill right across from it. And so it takes, as I recall, I think it takes about 20 minutes. I was there many years ago. But to walk, you walk down this little valley, and then you walk up the Mount, Mount Olives, maybe 20, 30-minute walk. And so they walk up on this Mount Olives, which is facing the Temple Mount, and his disciples then come to him, and they say, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so we have to take their question in the context of what has just been said. So we've had these parables that talk about the um, original heirs of the covenant not receiving it. We have the woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. We have his lament over Jerusalem. Then they were telling him, look at the buildings. And he says, no, all these buildings are going to be torn completely down. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then they come to him with this question. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of, the, of your coming and of the end of the age? And so once we begin to understand the context of the disciples' question, and what they were asking Jesus about. Maybe that can help us remove our temptation to inject our 21st century lens over this passage of Scripture. That when they are asking him the sign of his coming and the end of the age, they were not thinking, you know, 2,000 years from now when you come back uh, and the world ends. They were asking about the destruction of the temple. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but we're going to see how this, this language of the sign of your coming, that this is used in other places in the scripture, talking about God's coming. And it was a coming in judgment. It was not a coming to end all of time and to bring human history to a close. And the end of the age is talking about the end of the temple age, the end of this old covenant era. And so as we go through Matthew 24 and 25, we'll see that Jesus describes the destruction of the temple, and then he transitions 
and he describes a second event, which is his glorious return when he returns uh, to establish his kingdom physically and visibly on the earth. And we'll see how Jesus distinguishes for his disciples those two events, because in their mind, they may have been thinking that that would be one event. They're, they're so ethnocentric at this point. They're so uh, focused on Israel as the center of the universe, basically, that Jesus has to explain these two events to them separately. And we'll see how he does that, that he talks about one event that is going to happen within this generation, and he talks about the second event that not even the angels nor the Son, but only the Father knows when it's going to take place. And so even though the ESV even has an uninspired subheading above Matthew 24, it says, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. And maybe they put that in there to help people like me who who were misunderstanding this passage of Scripture. But before I use the ESV and before I really dug into this passage of Scripture, I still read this through a very modern lens and just read these verses in the context of my 21st century life and tried to extract any meaning I could out of it. But Jesus is talking about something very specific here. And throughout history, actually, theologians have understood that Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And, you know, it's only my own ignorance that kept me from understanding this. But let me just list some theologians who have held this position throughout history. Uh, Eusebius, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, John Lightfoot, John Calvin, Adam Clark, N.T. Wright, R.C. Sproul. So there's a lot of very, very respectable theologians, because if you're hearing this for the first time, like, the first time I was exposed to these ideas, it was it was kind of uh, frightening because it's pulling away some tradition or it's it's new information that I didn't know before, and that might be scary. But you know, just rest assured, this is a very orthodox position, and it will help us really understand this passage of scripture. The disciples are not asking about the end of the world; they're asking about the end of this temple, the end of the Old Covenant, the end of Jerusalem. And so we're going to go now verse by verse. Once you understand the question that's being answered, it's much easier to understand the answer. So we're going to look at how this all played out in history, and it is amazing. And that's why I said you'll appreciate the, the scripture even more as we go through Matthew 24 and you see, this is amazing. Like, Jesus was the most amazing prophet of God. And, I mean, obviously also the Messiah and the Son of God and God in the flesh, but Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and he foretold these things so accurately to the point even where secular scholars believe that Matthew 24 was written after 70 AD because it was such an accurate foretelling of what happened in 70 AD in Jerusalem. So people who don't believe the Bible's inspired, they don't believe that Jesus could have possibly foretold this with such accuracy. So they think it was written later after the fact. But we believe that Jesus knew these things and he foretold them by the Spirit of God and he was able to prophesy 
these things with such accuracy. It's amazing. So now we're going to get into Matthew 24 and look at it and look at what Jesus was talking about. But to understand what Jesus was talking about, it's important to understand the question that the disciples were asking, the question that Jesus was answering. And to understand that question, we have to take it in context of what was going on and what they were asking him about. They weren't asking him about the end of human history, the end of time. They were asking him about when are these stones going to be thrown down so that there's not one on top of another? What is the end of this temple age that we're living in? The, the end, the end of this thing that they were sitting on a hill looking at. So they're looking across the hill and they're saying, when is that going to end? All right, so let's get into Matthew 24. All right, so we're going to go verse by verse through Matthew 24. And as I said before, this is a very high altitude flyover of these verses in this scripture. There are scholars who have spent their entire careers uh, studying and dissecting this passage, and probably thousands and thousands of pages of commentary have been written on this passage. And so it's really something that we could spend years and years dissecting, and we're just going to do it in a very kind of introductory sort of fashion. And my goal is not to indoctrinate anyone My goal is not to convince you or to have you agree with me, but my goal is just to present some ideas that you can take to the Lord and that you can begin to explore. And in that process of exploring these ideas and testing the things that I'm going to say as you take these things before the Lord and you weigh them and you you test everything and you hold on to the good, that in that process that you get to know Jesus better and that you become more in awe of Christ, and you become more in love with Jesus. So you are a powerful individual, and you are powerful to reject anything that I say, because I could be wrong. And this has certainly been a journey for me, and things that I used to believe, I don't believe anymore. So I would be foolish to think that now I've got it all 100% right, and things that I believe now, uh, I'll still believe them later, because I'm also on a journey, and I'm also growing. And So these are the things that I feel like the Lord has shown me now, but I'm sure some of them are wrong, and I wish they weren't. I wish I had 100% accuracy in all of my theology, but to think that I do would be foolish and it would be arrogant, and I certainly recognize that as much as I wish I were right about everything, uh, it's just, it's not the way it is. And so I present these ideas to you to test them and to enjoy the process of getting to know the Lord as you test things by the Scripture, as you look at the Scripture, study the Scripture, and know that the Scripture is intended to bring us to the feet of Jesus and to love Him and to worship Him and to obey Him. All right, so let's get started. So Jesus is answering this question, as I set out in the previous episode, that His disciples have asked Him him about the destruction of the temple, and the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And so Jesus answers, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. And so this, uh, a lot of the information I'm going to be sharing with you came from a, a gentleman named George Peter Holford from a text in 1805 where he did a lot of research uh, from Josephus and from the ancient historians. And so Josephus was a Jewish historian who was not a Christian, but who recorded many of the facts in the era 
right after Christ's death and kind of that early church history period, a lot of the historical information we have, we get it from Josephus. And so Josephus reported that there were at least 120 people claiming to be Jesus. And so Jesus uh, warned his disciples. Josephus is reporting in this time right after the resurrection that there were all of these false Christ who claimed to be Jesus. And so Jesus was warning them, hey, there are going to be a lot of false Christ coming. Of course, you know, there were no pictures of what Christ looked like. And so people would come and say, hey, I am the Christ. And then he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, in our day and age, we think wars and rumors of wars, you know, that's that's been going on for all the time. There's always a war going on somewhere. But in the time of Jesus, that was not the case. This was during the time known as the Pax Romana. Rome was the unrivaled military power of its day. And so there was peace throughout the land because anytime anyone opposed Rome, they would just completely squash any rebellion, any opposing forces. So at the time Jesus was telling them this, there there wouldn't be any wars or rumors of wars. There would just be this this season of peace called the Pax Romana. So Jesus is telling them the warning signs that are going to precede the destruction of the temple. Remember, he's just said in Matthew uh, 23, he's talked about all of these things are going to come upon this generation, that the blood uh, from righteous Abel to Zechariah, the punishment for that is going to come upon this generation of people. And when we look in Revelation, we'll, we'll look at that verse where it says, and even those who pierced him will see him. So this is talking about something, Jesus is giving them the signs for when the temple is going to be destroyed. And so leading up to AD 70, the time, this that would have been roughly 40 years. So the like the very last moment where it could still be considered a generation from where Jesus has Warn the people, so 40 years was a generation. God being the merciful and kind and patient God that he is, waits till the last moment to give them every opportunity to repent. But in that generation, they don't repent, they don't receive the Messiah, and judgment comes upon them. And so Jesus is giving them the signs of when this is going to be happening. And so at the time Jesus is saying this, a rumor of a war or a war would be uh, unusual. But leading up to 70 AD, there would begin to be these uh, nations rising against nations, the rebellion of Jerusalem. So the people of Israel tried to rebel against Rome, and that is what caused the Roman army to come down and to completely destroy Jerusalem. There began to be wars and rumors of wars. But when Jesus is saying this, it, it would have been unusual. It would have seemed unlikely. At this time, the, the Jews were getting along with the Romans and everything seemed fine. But he says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And the nations that it talks about there is ethnos. So the ethnic group rising against ethnic group. And in his text, George Peter Holford actually documents uh, from Josephus many of these instances. For example, he talks about there was a pestilence in Babylon, and so the Jews fled that city and went to another city called Seleucia, 
where the Greeks and Syrians in that city rose against them and destroyed more than five myriads of people. That would be like 50,000 people. The extent of this slaughter, says Josephus, had no parallel in any former period of their history. Uh, five years after that massacre, there was another um, contest between the Jews at Perea and the Philadelphians on the, in the city of Mia, and many Jews were slain there. Four years after that, under Cumanus, a Roman soldier offered an indignity to the Jews within the precincts of the temple. And when they rebelled against this, the Romans responded with such excessive force that 10,000 Jews were trodden to death in the streets. Uh, he goes on to talk about how the Jews made wars, uh, war against the Samaritans that caused conflict in the country. At Caesarea, the Jews had another disagreement with the Syrians, and there was a conflict, and 20,000 Jews were slain in this. And so he gives very, very detailed uh, accounts of each of these um, prophecies that Jesus is making, each of these predictions that Jesus is making. And you have to remember, again, at this time, it's, it's the Pax Romana. So Jesus is, is saying, when you start to see these things, like, take note. And the amazing thing that Josephus records is that not one Christian was killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 because they saw these signs coming to pass and they remembered the words of Jesus. And when Jesus warned them in Luke, he says, when you see armies surrounding the city, flee for the mountains. And so the Christians who were in Jerusalem, when they saw these things coming to pass, they fled out of Jerusalem and they were, their lives were spared. And so that's the context. That's the purpose that Jesus is telling his followers these things, to preserve them, to, to give them warning signs that they know when to get out of Jerusalem. Okay, let's keep going here. Jesus warns them that there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And we even see this recorded in Acts. In Acts 11, Agabus predicts a famine. Uh, in Roman history, Josephus records these famines. And this is the culmination of the end of the Old Covenant. And if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 56 and 57, these are, in my opinion, the saddest verses in the Bible. Deuteronomy 28, 56, 57, it says, The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she's so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet, and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns." And this part of Deuteronomy is the curses for disobedience, and it's God warning them that if you don't keep the covenant, these are the curses that are going to come on you. And it's really one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture, and one of the most heartbreaking. And these verses literally came to pass during the Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. People were literally eating their own children. And it's so heartbreaking, and it's so revealing because he says, he, he's not talking about the most um, 
wicked among you are going to do this thing. He says the most gentle and refined woman among you is going to do this. And it shows that each one of us is capable of such unbelievable evil that each one of us needs a savior. But uh, sadly, all of these verses came to pass. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about famines and earthquakes. So we have uh, the famine that's predicted by Agabus in Acts 11. We have we see the church taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem because of this famine is so severe. And he talks about earthquakes. Uh, you know, throughout the New Testament, we have lots of earthquakes. We have an earthquake when Jesus dies. We have an earthquake when he rises from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, when they're praying, we have an earthquake. There's an earthquake when Peter is in prison. There's an earthquake when Paul is in prison. Uh, Roman historians actually describe non-stop earthquakes. We know that during the reign of Claudius, there was an earthquake at Rome, uh, one at another city called Ampamea in Syria, where there were many Jews. Uh, we know that these were recorded by a Roman historian named Tacitus. We also know that uh, from Roman historians that there were earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, uh, Samos, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, Campania, Rome, Judea, all these places, uh, Pompeii, all of these places were having lots and lots of earthquakes, so much so that it stood out to the Roman historians that this was unusual, that they were having so many earthquakes. And Jesus said, this is the beginning of the birth pains. This is just the start. And this might be a good time to pause and ask ourselves, what is it that's being birthed? If these are birth pains, what is it that's coming into the world? And I believe he's talking about the kingdom of God, the new covenant being fully released from the shadow and from the persecution of the old covenant. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4. This is verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's talking about the Christians. You guys are like Isaac. You came by the promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So he's making this allegory between Ishmael and Isaac. So he's saying, just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, he's saying it's the same way now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And, and so just a few verses before in Galatians 4.25, he says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, so he's contrasting these two different covenants, and this new covenant is being born. And we are not the children of the slave woman, of this old covenant of Mount Sinai, of the earthly Jerusalem, but we are from the new covenant. We're born of the Spirit. We're born from the Jerusalem that is above. So when Paul was writing that, the Christians were still being persecuted by the Jews, and the new covenant had not been fully birthed out of the shadow of the old covenant. It was still actually considered, when it started, it was still considered a sect of Judaism. But these are the birth pains. The new covenant is coming out of the shadow of the old covenant. 
Okay, back to Matthew 24. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, there was a time of severe persecution by the Emperor Nero from AD 67 to AD 70. There was the fire in Rome that many people think Nero himself started, but he blamed on the Christians and he used Christians. He, he crucified them and set them on fire and used them basically to, to light the, the streets with their burning bodies, just despicable, evil, wicked uh, acts by this horrible emperor and severe, severe persecution. And so we see that in the exhortations that we can see in the letters that Paul wrote, that Peter wrote, to encourage the believers not to fall away from the faith, to maintain their faith, to hold fast to their confession. Jesus tells them that the love of many will grow cold. This is what we see in uh, John's letter in Revelation to the church in Ephesus. He says, you don't have the same love that you had at first. He said, you've allowed your love to grow cold. So Jesus is exhorting them. He's warning them about the false teachers, and we see this throughout the New Testament. You know, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we see that some people were saying that there was no resurrection. In 2 Timothy, uh, we see that some people were saying that the resurrection had already happened. Colossians talks about those people who were uh, offering doctrines about worshiping angels, Second Timothy also talks about the doctrine of demons that wouldn't allow people to get married. So all throughout the epistles in our New Testament, we see that they're warning against these false teachers, false apostles, the Antichrist, all this heresy that was in the very young church. And so Jesus is warning them and telling them, you know, you need to endure until the end. And of course, there's still application for us. You know, I believe that he's specifically talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 in Matthew 24. But enduring to the end is necessary for every Christian in every era of time. So I'm not saying there aren't things in here that we can't apply to our lives, but he's talking to a specific group of people in a specific set of circumstances. And verse 14 in Matthew 24 sometimes, I think, is also difficult for us to understand because he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to nations, and then the end will come. And so it's a verse like that that immediately makes us think, well, he must be talking about the end of the world. We've always heard that verse that the gospel has to be preached to everyone, and then the end comes. If you grew up in mainstream evangelicalism, you think, well, we have to preach the gospel all over the world, and then Jesus is going to come back. But we need to look in context at what he's saying and the the Greek that was used there and where else it's used in the scripture. So the Greek that he uses there is called ekumene, when he says the whole world. And if you look, um, I'm pulling this from Strong's on the blueletterbible.com, but it says an outline of biblical usage would be, one, the inhabited earth. And under that definition, it's the portion of the earth inhabited by Greeks in distinction from the land of the barbarians. B, the Roman Empire, all subjects of the Roman Empire, the whole inhabited earth. And we can see that when we see the other places that it was used. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it's the same word, and it's talking about Caesar Augustus issues a census that the whole world should be taxed. 
Now, we know that Caesar Augustus was not taxing people in South America, so we don't want to take our 21st century concept of the whole world and read it back into the text when Jesus was likely talking about the Roman Empire or the localized world, the ecumene, not the cosmos, which is really interesting because Paul in Colossians, he says that the gospel has been preached to the whole world. And so we see this language in other places in Scripture. Um, Romans chapter 10, verse 18, he says, their words have gone out into, the, into all the ends of the earth. And so we see other places in the Scripture where the same language is used, but it's not in a literal whole world sense. And this is going to be helpful because eventually we're going to get down to verse 34 where he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, which C.S. Lewis called the most embarrassing verse in the Bible because he didn't have a framework for understanding that Jesus was in fact talking about something that did take place before that generation passed away. Jesus was talking about something that was going to happen within the lifetime of the people that he was speaking to. And so when we understand verse 14, when he says the whole world, we don't need to read our understanding of the whole world into that. We need to take the understanding that's in the text and let that inform us just like we would in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. Yet we know at that time, you know, the gospel hadn't been to North America or South America. They didn't even know these places existed. And so there's a contextual understanding that helps us reconcile, well, Jesus said all these things were going to happen within this generation. And we see that the gospel actually did go forth to the whole world as it's understood in that verse, as it's understood, you know, as Paul understood it in Colossians chapter 1, where he says the gospel has gone out into the whole world. We see that this actually was, in fact, fulfilled. And we look and we see even non-Christians reported the same things in Acts chapter 17 when they're bringing the accusation against the Christians. They say, these guys have turned the world upside down, and now they've come here. And so even non-Christians would recognize, wow, this you know, belief system has spread all over the whole world. And so that's helpful for us to, to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. All right, I hope you're able to stick with me. Let's go back to the text, Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And there he's talking about the reader of Daniel, right? Not the reader of Matthew. He's saying, let the reader of Daniel understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so the abomination of desolation And we get a clue about this in Luke 21, 20, which says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So there's this abomination that causes desolation. And there was a man documented by the historian Josephus, whose name was John Levi, who came in and set himself up as God in the temple. And We'll get into a little bit more detail about him later, but Luke ties this to armies surrounding Jerusalem. And so the same abomination that causes desolation 
Another sign that's going to accompany it is armies, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. And so when the Christians saw the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, they remembered the words of Jesus and they took off in, you know, they headed to the mountains. They found a safe place in the mountains where they took refuge and the Christians were saved. And so this is a specific instruction to a specific set of people. And so if you're living in Northwest Arkansas or if you're living in Texas or Canada or the Philippines or China, you are not in Judea. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He says, let no one on the housetop go down to take what is in his house. You know, at that time, people had flat roofs. And in fact, the Old Testament even gave them instructions that they had to put railings on their rooftops to keep people from falling and dying. So a flat rooftop was very common back then. And he's saying, don't even go back down into your house. You could actually flee the city from rooftop to rooftop. You could walk across the the houses if they were close enough to each other. He says, the one who's in the field, don't go back to take your cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Okay, let's talk about that for a little bit. These are clearly specific instructions for a, you know, first century Middle Eastern people living in a Jewish context. If these verses were for us today, first of all, we're not in Judea, so it wouldn't, there's no application for us. Uh, Second of all, we're rarely on our housetops, probably. Um, You know, we're generally not out in the fields. And he's saying, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing. And he says, pray that your flight may not be in winter on a Sabbath. Now, there's nowhere on the earth where having to flee a city on the Sabbath in our day and age would matter at all. But at that time, when the Old Covenant was still established in Jerusalem, and you still had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the temple guards, if they saw someone violating the Sabbath, they could arrest them. You remember that they, uh, they had their own guards that went and arrested Jesus. You remember that uh, they saw the man carrying his mat, and they said, hey, it's not lawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So he's saying, pray that your flight won't take place on a Sabbath, because there were limitations to how far you were allowed to walk on a Sabbath day. And if a Pharisee or a scribe or someone with authority saw you violating the Sabbath, they could actually arrest you for that. So what I'm getting at is that these are very specific instructions for a very specific group of people that are not for us today. And there are things that we can learn from this passage, but there is no cause for us to be concerned that there will be a great tribulation on a Sabbath day, or that there will be a great uh, tribulation that happens in the winter time, because if if you're in rural Kentucky, where do you, where do you flee to? You know, if if your instructions are to you know flee to the mountains if you're in Judea, well, what if you're not in Judea? And so, again, these are specific instructions for a specific group of people. If you're a woman, there's no reason for you to be concerned about being pregnant. 
There's no reason for you to be concerned about nursing your baby because he was saying if when the armies surround Jerusalem and you have to get out of the city and you're pregnant, it's going to be hard. If you're nursing a baby and you've got to flee for your life with your infant, that is going to be hard. And that was also a fulfillment of what Jesus said when he was being led away to be crucified. Remember, uh, he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And so Jesus is warning them, like, this is, the Messiah is here now, there's life, and they're acting this way. Well, when God takes his spirit, when God withdraws his spirit from the temple, how much worse is it going to be? You know, referring back to those verses in Deuteronomy and, and what history records where women actually began eating their own children. So these concerns are not for modern-day mothers. They're for a specific set of mothers in the first century facing a Roman siege of Jerusalem. He goes on, if it's in the wintertime, that's going to make it harder. If it's on a Sabbath day, that's going to make it harder. And then look at verse 21. He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And that is also kind of hard for us to understand, partly because we're ignorant about how devastating and how horrible the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem was in AD 70, and what a huge blow it was to the Jewish nation, that the temple was destroyed, the temple genealogical records were destroyed, so there could never be a priesthood again, and that the old covenant system was completely decimated. And so from our perspective, having seen World War II, having seen the Holocaust, we think we, we've seen great tragedies that in terms of lives lost, it seems like the Holocaust would be the worst thing to ever happen to the Jews. But in terms of decimating their religious system, there was nothing like what happened in AD 70. And Jesus said there will be nothing like it again. And this should be somewhat encouraging to us because Jesus is saying this will be the worst tribulation that has been from the beginning of the world and will never be again. And he says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And he says that there won't be another tribulation like this ever again. And so if this were the end of the world, the end of all human history, there wouldn't be an ever again because it would just be the end. But he's talking about a specific event that happened at AD 70. 1.1 million Jews were killed, 91,000 Jews were taken as slaves, and as I said already, biblical Judaism was permanently decimated, destroyed, wiped out. And it's interesting that Jesus tells them that when you see this happening, flee to the mountains, because the, their, their instinct would have been to flee into the city, because the city had the wall, the city had the food stores, the city would have been kind of instinctively the safe place to run. But Jesus tells them, don't go into the city. When you see the abomination causing desolation, that causes desolation, flee to the mountains. 
And according to the ancient church historian Eusebius, it was during this Jewish revolt that Jesus' warning was heeded by the Christians when the Christians fled to the mountains of Pella. And so that's a well-documented thing in history. But sadly, the guy that I mentioned before, John Levi, he sets himself up as this Messiah figure, says that he's God, and tells the people to prove that you trust me, to prove that you believe in me. I want you to burn all of the food stores that we have, and I am going to miraculously take care of us. And so the people listen to him. Josephus documents this. They destroy four years' worth of food stores in Jerusalem. Jerusalem could have held out the Roman siege for a long, long time, except they were led astray by this false Christ, and they burn all of their food. And so uh, when the Roman army uh, lays siege to Jerusalem, everyone starves to death. And so how this unfolded as recorded by Josephus in history, this Roman general named uh, Cestus attacks Jerusalem, and then he backs off. And the Jews think, that this is God's miraculous provision. They think that God has delivered them and they're celebrating and they're becoming more and more arrogant and less and less willing to negotiate with the Romans, more and more hard-headed. And the believers, the Christians, when the Romans back off the first time, the Christians get out of Dodge. They leave Jerusalem. They head out. They remember Jesus' words, and they flee the city. And this is, like I said, this is recorded by a non-Christian historian. And so the Christians flee, and then Cestus is replaced by Titus, another Roman general. And Titus lays siege to the city. And the historical record that when Titus goes into Jerusalem, after they've laid siege to it for like four months, I think, They go into Jerusalem, and it says that he could not put his foot, there was no place for him to put his foot down because of all the dead bodies that were in the streets. And uh, it talks about that even Titus was heartbroken and wept as he entered the city, that he couldn't uh, believe the carnage that had happened in this city where these people have starved to death. And so Jesus is warning them the same, similar to the warning he gives at the beginning. He's saying, look, if anyone says that it's the... It, that there the Christ is in here, he's in this inner room, don't believe it. And then he says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And you know, it's honestly, it's hard to not read all of my years of kind of left behind novels and all of the preaching that I've heard about the second coming of Christ. It's hard not to read that into that verse. And I'll just be honest. But when I look at it, when I look at it with the verse before it, or the five verses before it, and the verse after it, or the five verses after it, I, I just think maybe we're reading into that verse meaning versus letting the verse tell us or letting the scripture speak what it means to us. And let me give you another example unrelated to Matthew 24. Like, let's say when we see the word bishop somewhere in the scripture. Well, you know, if you grew up in a high church setting, you have a picture in your mind of what a bishop is and how they might dress. You know, in a, in a Catholic or in an Orthodox setting, the bishop wears a very unique set of clothes. But that's not what that word meant. So when we see the word bishop in the scripture, if that's what we picture, basically we're reading our own meaning into that word. But 
if we try and extract what the original author intended and what Jesus was saying, to me, he's getting at this is going to happen quickly. It's going to happen suddenly. And I'm letting you know that I'm not coming in secret. I'm not coming secretly. I'm not coming quietly. The judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem is going to be open and everyone is going to see it. And even if this verse were about his second coming, I believe there's other places in scripture that make it clear that his second coming is also going to be unmistakable. So whether it's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem or referring to his second coming, which to me, it's it's a stretch to try and read that in there because why would he suddenly begin talking about his second coming when all of these other verses have been a specific instructions on how to get out of Jerusalem? And so some other people might say, well, that's the whole point. Maybe those verses aren't about how to get out of Jerusalem. But again, we still have to get down to verse 34 where he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And you know, some people, some translations have said, oh, maybe the word generation could be translated race. Well, the only problem is the word is not translated race anywhere else in the scripture. So it's a, you know, it's it's basically trying to change the meaning of that word and make it mean something else that it hasn't met anywhere else in the Bible. So um, that doesn't seem to hold water to me. And the other reason I think he's talking about his coming in judgment on the Jews on the temple system in AD 70 and not his second coming is because of the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And if we look at those passages, they contain much of the same information with less detail than Matthew, all the way to the lesson of the fig tree. But they all start with the same question and with the same circumstance. So they, in Mark 13, They say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're talking about the temple. And Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then they go up the Mount of Olives, same thing. And they say, tell us when these things are about to be accomplished. And then he goes and he says the same thing with the, and the thing is in our modern translations, we get these uninspired subheadings that like break everything out and we get our chapter division and our verses divisions. But we have to remember those are not part of the inspired text. The the these subheadings and the verses and the chapter divisions, those were not there obviously when the text was originally written. And similarly, in Luke 21, it's the same thing where he's foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, he's saying if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains, let those who are inside the city depart. Um talking about that the city is going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentile. And then he gets into the same wording that Matthew has where he starts talking about signs and the sun and the moon and the stars, and then the lesson of the fig tree. And all of these are still in response to the the question, when is this going to happen when he's saying the temple is going to be destroyed? They're asking him, when is this going to happen? And then he ends all of them also with this generation will not pass away until all of this has taken place. So Jesus, in each of these parallel passages, he's saying, I'm telling you about things that are going to happen in this generation. And then in each of the passages, then he moves into stories and parables about being alert and staying awake. And we're going to get to that. But for right now, when we're looking at Matthew 24 and this language of lightning flashing from the east into the west, I think we just, 
if we if we take it in context and if we take it with the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, it just seems more reasonable to me to understand that he is answering a specific question, talking about a specific event that happened in AD 70. And then we'll see later in Matthew 25 that then Matthew starts talking about the final judgment and when the, the Son of Man comes and, you know, all of the angels are with him and he gathers all of the nations before his throne. And that is the final coming of Christ. But let's go back now uh, to the text here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And another way to translate that word vulture is a bird of prey or like an eagle. So um, the eagle was the on the Roman shields and on their standards. It's this Greek word, Atos, A-E-T-O-S is the English spelling. And it's a sign of the Romans invading Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is the lifeless corpse. I mean, literally there were corpses in the street, but also like Jesus said in Luke when he was warning the women, he says if they do this when the, when the tree is green, how much more when it's dry? So all of the life has gone out of the old covenant, out of the temple system, Jerusalem is this corpse now, and the vultures are gathering. The Romans have come into the city, and they're trampling it underfoot. So what happens is, I mentioned, Titus comes in. There's dead bodies everywhere. Uh, John Levi has locked himself in the temple, and Titus is trying to protect the temple. He, it's, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. The, the bricks of the temple are layered with gold. It, it shines in the sun. It's a magnificent building. That's why the disciples, when they, you know, they pointed out to Jesus, like, Jesus, look at these amazing buildings. I mean, it was an impressive, impressive structure. And Titus tries to protect it. He tries to preserve it. But the Roman army is out of control. They are uncontrollable, and they pull the temple apart brick by brick, which is exactly what Jesus predicted, and they melt, they burn it with fire to get the gold off the bricks, and um, they they take this guy John Levi captive, they kill all these people, and it is a tragedy. And when you read this guy, uh, Holford's description of it uh, from the records of Josephus, it is just heart-wrenching. But it is remarkable, the accuracy with which Jesus foretold these events. Then in Matthew 24, 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Hebrews chapter 12 uses the same kind of language. I'm starting at verse 26. At that time, he's talking about when uh, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. So talking about the, the audible voice of God at Mount Sinai, when the mountain was smoking, the earth was shaking. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, that's the temple, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And the things that can't be shaken is the spiritual and visible realm. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So Hebrews affirms this, that when the old covenant came, there was a shaking of the earth. But now in the new covenant, yet once more, he's talking about he's going to shake it again and remove the physical, visible, tangible things. Because when Hebrews is being written, now we have to remember, at the time that Hebrews is written, the temple is still there. So the temple hasn't been removed yet. And so it's looking for this day that they knew from the words of Jesus were going to happen within a generation of him speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is using this language, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And in our framework, in our mindset, sometimes we're tempted to take these things very literally. But if we look at the context of the scripture, and if we look at other places in the Bible where this kind of language is used, we begin to see that maybe this isn't talking about literal sun, literal moon, literal stars. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. It says, The stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising. And if you look back a little bit, this is talking about the judgment of Babylon. And so we know that the, um, the stars of the heavens actually didn't stop shining. The sun actually wasn't darkened. It's, this is uh, allegorical, apocalyptic language to describe this massive shift. Uh, Isaiah 34, 4, same thing. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as the leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And so this is talking about judgment that God is bringing against the nations. Look at Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7. This is talking about judgment on Egypt and on Pharaoh. It says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And so it's referring to a massive shift in the power structure, a massive shift in the nations. Joel chapter 2 verse 10 says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars with their shining. So this kind of apocalyptic language can be seen in the Old Testament. Matthew, you know, is the gospel that's written to a Jewish audience. They certainly would have been familiar when they heard this kind of language. They would not have associated it with astronomical events in the heavens, but with political powers. Um, for example, Amos chapter 8, verse 9, it says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And it's this language of judgment. It's the language of mourning. It's this apocalyptic language. If you remember when Joseph had his dream and um, he told his brothers, hey, I had a dream and the you guys bowed down to me and the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to me. And they took offense at that. But the point is the sun and the moon and 
you know, the stars did not physically come and bow down to Joseph, but his brothers did come and bow down to him. So it was a sign, it was a representation, and that's what we're seeing both in Matthew 24 and in the parallel passages in Luke 21 and Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Mark 13, the same kind of language. And so when we begin to get a little bit of context and try and hear it like the original listeners would have been hearing this, we can begin to understand a little bit, okay, maybe this isn't talking about you know, astronomical events and things, though I certainly believe that there are also those events in Scripture, for example, when the sun was darkened when Jesus was crucified. I believe that the sun was literally darkened, that there may have been an eclipse at that time. You know, certain people have proposed that, but I I have no trouble believing in a physical, literal darkening of the sun. But taken in context of what everything else that's being communicated in this passage where Jesus is talking, this is clearly fitting into this Old Testament uh language of judgment and of apocalypse, because it is. It's the apocalypse of the old covenant. It's this incredible end of an era, and it's what Hebrews is talking about, that the days of the temple were numbered, that this system was numbered, and it was going to be shaken to the point of being completely wiped out, not one stone left on another. And then he says in verse 30, Matthew 24, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so again, this is language that we tend to take very literally. We, we picture Jesus, well, maybe I shouldn't say we, I'll just use myself. I, I kind of always picture Jesus riding on a cloud. But if we get a little bit of context for the way that the the Jewish mind would have been thinking and the way that Jesus's original hearers would have understood his words, I think that will really help us. Look with me at Psalm chapter 18. Psalm chapter 18 from verse 7 to verse 15 says this. This is a Psalm of David. Sorry, let me back up a little bit. Uh, Psalm chapter 18 has this introduction. It says, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. All right, now I'm going to start in verse 7. He said, Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Talking about God. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. 
and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. So, do you remember the story where David was fighting his enemies, and then the heavens opened up, and the Lord swooped down, riding on an angel, and picked up David uh, from the channels of the sea? No, right? Because that, that never literally happened. So when David writes this psalm, he's recognizing that it was the Lord who rescued him from the hand of Saul. David is acknowledging, it is God who saved me. It's God who enabled me to overcome my enemies. And so he uses this poetic language to describe how God delivered him out of the hand of his enemies. But we know that God did not literally ride down on an angel and pick up David in his hand and deliver him out of waters. You know, we we know that that's not what happened. Okay, so the the same way, the same kind of language is used all over the Bible. And so the more we're familiar with the language of the Old Testament, the easier it is to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. It says, "...an oracle concerning Egypt." Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So we know that God did not physically ride on a cloud to Egypt, okay? All right, look with me at Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So again, it's this apocalyptic picture of clouds. And so when the Hebrews heard about God coming on the clouds, they recognized this as coming in judgment. And so I wonder when Jesus was being questioned by the high priest, and the high priest This is Matthew 26 now. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so I wonder if, if, you know, that wasn't Jesus telling these guys, I am coming back and I am going to judge you. And they knew it. And that's, you know, he tears his robes and they begin to beat him. And they knew what this guy was saying, that he was the Christ, that he was going to come in judgment on them because they were familiar with this language of coming on the clouds. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1. Verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Then jumping down to verse 15 of the same chapter, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And so Jesus in Matthew 24, when he says, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, our tendency as Western, uh, kind of Greek-trained thinkers, we think, okay, literal clouds, Jesus riding on the clouds. But for the Hebrew mind, acquainted with the Jewish scriptures, clouds meant judgment. Clouds meant 
God coming in wrath. And so that's exactly what Christ had warned them about in Matthew chapter 23 when he's saying, look, on this generation will come all the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah. And he's just emphasizing that, that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And I believe that this is the transition from the old covenant where everything was centered around Jerusalem to the new covenant where now it's the spiritual Jerusalem, it's the heavenly Jerusalem, and we are going out into all the earth And he's sending out the call to gather in the family of God from every tribe, from every tongue, from every corner of the earth. And it's the beginning of global evangelism, that the angels are, are empowering his people to go and do the work of the church and to gather in all people. And then we get the lesson of the fig tree. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so to me, the best way to make sense of this text is to understand that he's talking about signs that are going to happen within a generation, and that would have been 40 years, of when he was speaking. And so he says, just like you see the leaves on this tree, you know the summer is near. He says, when you see these signs, you know that the judgment of Jerusalem is near, that I am coming on the clouds, that I'm coming in judgment. And his original audience would have understood that in a way that's perhaps more difficult for us to understand. He says, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And again, perhaps one of the most compelling verses in understanding all of this is when he says, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he's offered a specific time frame for when this is going to happen. Now we're in verse 36, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And there, um, some theologians say that, okay, this is the transition point. Now Christ is transitioning from talking about the destruction of the temple, and now he's talking about the parousia, or the the second, the final coming of Christ. Um, I'm not so convinced myself, but we'll just leave that there for now, because I think the transition verse comes later when, uh, in Matthew 25, when he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And so I think after he tells the parables about being ready. So he moves from giving all of these signs, and then he begins to tell them, no one knows the day or the hour. So like it was in the days of Noah, with people just carrying on with their lives until Noah entered the ark, that's how it's going to be at the the coming of the Son of Man. He says, two men will be in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. And of course, uh, growing up in an evangelical church, I always heard that interpreted as the rapture, the, the vacuuming off of the planet of the Christians. One's taken and one is left. Um, but I don't think, I think that's really reading back into the text something that really isn't there. I think this is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, that as the Romans came into Israel, that they slaughtered people, they literally killed people on the road, they literally killed people in the fields, they would uh, purposefully kill some people and leave others alive to strike fear, that those people would go and take a report and strike fear into the rest of the community that they might surrender and that the Romans might just take over, that they wouldn't even have to fight, that the people would be so afraid. And so I think that that is actually still talking about the um, the coming army, the Roman army coming into Jerusalem, coming into Israel to um, during the Jewish revolt from AD 67 to 70, that window there. But to me, the important thing in the rest of Matthew 24 is he begins telling these parables and these stories, talking about being ready. And this is absolutely 100% applicable to every Christian in every era, that ultimately, you know, I could be wrong about Matthew 24. There are a lot of different opinions. A lot of well-respected theologians disagree about what all of this means, but we know one thing, that we want to be ready when Christ comes, and the way to be ready is to present our bodies to God every single day as a living sacrifice, that every day we're waking up and we're offering our bodies to the Lord. We're saying, God, here is my body. Use it to establish your kingdom on the earth. We're surrendering to God every day. We're saying, God, take the members of my body, take my hands, take my feet, take my arms, take my legs, take my voice, take my ears, my eyes, and use them as instruments of righteousness to do your will on the earth. And so I think regardless of our interpretation of this scripture, we can agree that we should be ready, that we should be wise. And so he goes into these stories about readiness, which were certainly for his followers then, but they are also still certainly for his followers today, that we must be ready at the coming of the Lord. And so I'm going to stop there for now. I hope this has been a blessing to you. I hope that maybe this takes some of the fear out of uh, a coming tribulation. You know, I really believe that the kingdom of God is going to expand. I really believe that it's like the vision that Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, where the rock that struck the statue becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth. And so we're not waiting for darkness to overtake the earth. We're not waiting for this horrible abomination of desolation, that these things happened in AD 70 and they were horrible, but Jesus said that there will never be another tribulation as bad as that one. And so we are living in an era where we are heirs of the kingdom and we're pushing the kingdom forward on planet earth for the glory of Jesus and for the good of mankind, that every heart on planet earth would know how wonderful Jesus is and that they would give their lives to loving him and to obeying him 
understanding that that is, in fact, the best thing that they could ever do for themselves. So I hope this encourages you. I hope it takes some of the fear out of eschatology, some of the fear out of the end times, and adds a little bit of understanding. In our next session, we're going to look quickly at Matthew 25, and then we'll be ready to dive into the book of Revelation. Revelation.